0: Welcome to the Miles Pike Podcast, a podcast that strives to foster excellence in gospel music both on the stage and in the local church through conversations. I'm your host, Miles Pike. I'm hoping to probe into the lives and minds of gospel artists, industry legends, and some frontline people on the worship scene. Guests include fellow artists, pastors, session players, producers, songwriters, comedians, radio personalities, and theologians. Subscribe to not miss an episode. Share on social media with the musicians, pastors, and music ministers in your life. And please rate and comment to help take us all the way to being able to say that dozens and dozens are listening. Thank you for taking time to join in on the conversation. Now on to the program. It was on a Gaither video about 18 years ago that I first saw the face of Buddy Green and heard his finesse on harmonica. I never forgot that. And now Buddy's CDs are some of the most listened to in my music collection. His messages strike a wonderful balance between encouraging and admonishing as he exhorts believers onto good works and to remember their first love. The church needs more music like his that spurs us onward and upward. His presentation is always far above par and it's obvious that he feels great responsibility in putting his best foot forward to make the gospel musically appealing to his audience. I've attended several Buddy Green concerts in my life and I've always left blown away by his talent and lifted by the spirit that I felt there. Check out his website to find out when he'll be coming your way again, like him on Facebook, join his mailing list, get his music, and much more at www.buddygreen.com. That's B-U-D-D-Y-G-R-E-E-N-E dot com. Now on to the interview. Well, here on the phone, I have Buddy Green, and I have been looking forward to this conversation for such a long time, and so thankful that he was willing to take time uh, to come on the podcast with me. How are you doing this morning, Buddy? I'm doing well, my friend. It's good to be with you. Man, I'm just so excited. Thank you for being on. Uh, But... I always like to kind of start off with a little, uh, you know, back history, mm-hmm. uh, if there is any, with with me and the person I'm talking to. But uh, how, how did how did we meet?
1: Well, I, you know, I guess you invited me to play on one of your albums a while back, wasn't that maybe the? Yeah,
0: mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it was on uh, my second hymns project. I remember uh, Tommy was talking about you did the. Uh, harmonica salad on how deep the father's love for us (laughs) yeah i i I do
1: i i do remember i can't remember how long ago that was but i bet it's longer than i even want to think about was it seven or eight years ago maybe?
0: i believe it was 2014
1: okay six yeah yeah, so about about six and that's uh, not too bad
0: man well and, and that that whole process it's just you know, it was seeing your brilliance and then Tommy's brilliance all put together in, in one thing. That just turned out really yeah, great. Yeah, well,
1: and, I, uh, I, I liked it, too. I enjoyed working with Tommy. He's a, you were in good hands with that guy. And, uh, and oh, was,
0: yeah. yeah. I'm looking forward to interviewing him later oh, on, Oh, good.
1: Too. It was also great meeting you and Martha and, you know, just starting a friendship that lasts up to this day.
0: Yeah, and I remember you uh, on the next album. You sang background vocals on a Rich Mullen song called "Hard," and uh, and then and then you did um, some some backgrounds on a song that you had previously recorded that put me onto this old hymn, uh, "Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder," huh, yeah. uh, based out of the Book of Hebrews. Now, how how did you find that song? It's an old John Newton tune. Yeah, it is.
1: We uh, we started singing it we we uh, back in the late 90s at Christ Community Church, um, we got a an associate pastor came aboard, uh, a guy named Clyde Godwin. And he introduced that hymn to us. We were not familiar with it. Our church wasn't. But he had sung it in the old setting, music setting. And um, yeah. so I remember hearing the old music setting, and it was actually a pretty good setting for congregational singing, but... I don't know, it didn't excite me too much. And um, I was on a trip, I think, down in Georgia one time and loved that lyric. And so um, I just, you know, I started hearing a melody and chased it around one day till I came up with a setting that I liked and, and later on recorded it on an album called Regarding Sinners and Saints.
0: Oh, that, that's my favorite Betty Green album. That's mm-hmm. just... It's fantastic well, from beginning to thanks. end I love thematic stuff and it's it's got everything it.
1: yeah I used to um, I used to tell people when when I was singing a lot from that album I'd say you know this is from my latest album and I you know regarding sinners and saints and it's also known as uh, confessions of a Presbyterian elder I think <laughs> <laughs> <It was> something <laughs> like That's that great. It came out of that period. <laughs> most of those songs, anyway. I was I was serving as an elder at our church and discovered all kinds of bad things about myself.
0: <laughs> wow, well, yeah, it's. It, I think uh, that one line is one of my favorites as far as lyrics. Um, it, of course, it's pulled out of Hebrews, but Newton's lyric is, "He has hushed the law's loud thunder; he has quenched Mount Sinai's yeah we we've actually got, got that written on our wall in our hall. Oh wow. Uh,
1: yeah, yeah, Newton so, Newton yeah. was quite a a good hymn writer and you know, I think those the story I heard about Newton was uh, you know, he and William Cooper were part of this uh, little village called on- Oni. It's spelled like Olney, but I think the English pronounce it Oni and um it was a mill town. So a bunch of mill workers mm-hmm. and um he was sort of sent on assignment there as kind of a relatively new, um, uh, he was a new pastor. He was, um, um, and, and so anyway, he came to know William Cooper who struggled with mental illness and all sorts of things. And they would write every, just about every week uh, a hymn that would help illustrate the lesson, whatever was gonna be a part of the Sunday lesson. And so, yeah. So this was, I think, probably he was trying to illustrate the, the you know the um, the Hebrew text that you're talking about.
0: Uh, Oddly enough, I think that's very much the story of how Michael Card got started Mm -hmm. (laughs) doing what. Yeah, and it's
1: very similar. Yeah, I I think uh, he's Michael's always, you know, he's always referred to himself as a frustrated Bible teacher when he comes to being a songwriter because he's, he's he's really just trying to, you know, whatever song he's writing, he just wants it to be a pointer to the larger truth he's that he's talking about, you know, in, in the scriptures.
0: Well, man, he, he's accomplished it. I, I love his work. Yeah, um, yeah. He, but, he had uh, a
1: huge impact on me, especially early on as I was, because I was kind of a brand new believer when I discovered him and his work.
0: Yeah, y'all were y'all were kind of contemporaries, um, and still good friends today. Though. Yeah,
1: we are. Yeah, love Michael.
0: But I I, I want to go back uh, to your roots a little bit. I mean, I know you was born in Macon, Georgia, but I don't really know that much about Macon. Uh, was it a music hub of any kind?
1: Yeah, it was a music hub. Um, it's uh, the home of Little Richard, of Otis Redding. Uh, is from Macon, Georgia. Um, James Brown used to record some there. Um, and the Almond Brothers moved there uh, when they first started as a group. And, and so that, that initial phase of the Almond Brothers through, through the late 60s through the 70s, um, they were living in, in Macon and their record label, Capricorn Records, was headquartered there. Uh, yeah, a guy named Phil Walden kind of started all that. He had actually been the a manager for uh, Otis Redding and a bunch of other rhythm and blues acts, and he discovered Dwayne Allman, and, and he and Dwayne kind of got together and came up with this idea of putting a band together and bringing it to Macon and just starting it from scratch there, and that all became the Allman Brothers Capricorn phenomenon, which led to Southern Rock. So, you know, that was sort of the, the hotbed for Southern Rock as well. So, yeah, Macon was a, it always had a pretty cool, you know, musical heritage going on.
0: Yeah, and what's the size of the town? I never thought of it as a very large place. I think I've driven through it a couple of times, but, you know, you always take the loop mm-hmm. and you don't pay that much attention, you know. Unless right. You're yeah, it's
1: right in the middle of the state, and uh, it's about 100,000 people, I think thereabouts. I, had, okay. I, haven't, I, I think it's been pretty stagnant in its growth for the last 30, or 40 years, but that's been the time I've been gone. So I'm not that sure. it doesn't seem like it's grown much though when I go back and visit there. Um, but yet it's, 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 it's kind of a you know Macon's an interesting place. It was spared by Sherman when he burned his way through Georgia after the Battle of Atlanta in the Civil War. Uh, which,
0: because he was a sucker for Southern rock music, and he just couldn't. You know, he <laughs> couldn't strike. Actually, the
1: match. I think he was just by that time he was on a hurry to get to Savannah and uh, <laughs> and and, uh, and and get on with the end of the war. But but what it what it meant was he he didn't burn Macon. So Macon has a lot of antebellum homes and uh, and that's very proud of all these huge mansions and. Um,
0: Oh, that makes me want to go visit, mate. Yeah,
1: it, so. it, it's it's got a real fascinating architectural history, and um, th- there's a lot of cool things about it um, about its history. Period. A lot of weird things about it as well. Uh, but it,
0: <laughs> well, if if nothing else, I just want to go find the the statue that says Buddy Green was born uh, here, and you know, <laughs> I like, can have my picture taken. Yeah,
1: you'll look long and hard for that one. Let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Now, you uh, you started performing, I believe, when you were 10, but was that on harmonica, just singing? I mean, what no, what did you do? I was playing
1: the ukulele. Uh, um, I had, <laughs> oh, I had a, little, wow. uh, a little uke that I, my sister had gotten it before me, actually. And she, she was about four years older than me. And I think she got it one summer just to take to camp because all of her friends were going to get ukuleles and they were going to play folk songs, which were, um kind of, you know, the that was the there was sort of a folk uh revival going on and it that was bleeding over into popular music with acts like Peter, Paul and Mary and the Kingston Trio and and all that kind of stuff was was, you know, on on the radio and it was inspiring, mm-hmm. you know, young teenage mainly teenage girls, to uh want to learn songs like if I had a hammer and, um, 500 miles and lemon tree, all these little old folk songs. Anyway, she got, it lasted about, a, you know, five minutes before they all lost interest in it. And, and then she discarded <laughs> that uke and, and, um, you know, I was, I was 10 years old, very small. I I was beginning to realize as all my friends were starting to play, um, sports, team sports that, that I was just going to get killed if I went out for football or anything like that. (laughs) I saw this little ukulele. It fit my hands pretty well. And she taught me the three or four chords she knew and the few songs that she knew. And I just got hooked on it. And within a few months of that, the Beatles came to America. Um, Mm -hmm. And when I saw that on Ed Sullivan, like many, you know, aspiring young musicians of my generation, we just, I just went nuts. And, I thought that's the coolest thing I've ever seen to see these guys sort of self contained you know they were they were the band, you know the band wasn't off in the wing somewhere and them just out there singing, but they were playing their music, they were singing their own songs they'd written uh the you know girls were going crazy watching them, and I was thinking, man, that's what I want <laughs> to do to hang with these sports where you get all beat up No, i want I want to stand up on a stage and and get adulation <laughs> It didn't
0: well. Uh, is there any audio or video of a ten-year-old buddy on YouTube somewhere we can you,
1: Google? <laughs> you know, there's not. But actually, within a year of uh, you know, I had a, a I put together a little band pretty quickly of neighborhood friends, and um, within a within a few months we had graduated to guitars and drums and you know all that we were we were trying to sound more like the real deal and um, mm-hmm. and by I think by age eleven we. Had, had recorded a, a, a song, a song that I had written. Oh, wow. that was a, we did a forty-five RPM record, recorded it right there in Macon, Georgia, with studio musicians. Actually, uh, so actually, it was just me singing for the most part, and uh, they they decided we were mm-hmm. not far enough along to <laughs> to make our own, <laughs> to you know, to, do the the music on our own record, but but. There are some real to real tapes that have come to m- into my possession from the uh, the drummer's dad used to he he was sort of an ad hoc manager for us and uh, he used to record us in his basement uh, when we would practice so I've actually got some of those early rehearsal tapes on oh, the file cool. and they're they're kind of you know fascinating to to listen to we're we're singing songs like. Uh, Mustang Sally and Louie Louie and you know in our eleven year old voices <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, when did the uh, harmonica come into the picture for you?
1: yeah know that wasn't a two I got one when I was a kid, but I couldn't do anything with it, so I threw it in a
0: well, and the Beatles didn't have one so well, they
1: did have one John Lennon was a oh John oh, Lennon was I a did. very good harmonica player, and their early stuff with it.
0: Shows you how much I know
1: about it. Yeah, he the beat. he he featured it quite a bit on those first few albums. Um, in fact, there was a there was a you know there was a song that went. So I don't know how well that came across on the uh, on the on your audio there, but it was just a real simple <laughs> thing that just about anybody could do. It was on a song called "I, sh- I Should Have Known Better with a Girl Like You," something like that. It was a uh, it was part of the um, Hard Day's Night movie, their, the soundtrack. So, I'm,
0: Well, now that you play that, I, I just know it culturally. I just didn't realize it was Oh, yeah, the Love
1: Me Do. Oh, yeah. I mean, they had a bunch of songs where they used the harmonica. Um, and right on up into Sgt. Pepper, they were, they were using bass harmonicas and stuff like that. So, so, yeah, it was already a cool instrument because people like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones used it in their sound. But I couldn't figure anything out about it until I was about uh, 18 or so and uh, riding around one time with a couple of friends and they had, they had a couple of harmonicas that were both the same key and they were messing around with them and just having fun and just getting some rhythmic stuff out of it and. And it wasn't it wasn't very good but it, it was enough to pique my interest and in make me go back and dig out that old harmonica and start messing around with it and i think by that time i'd been playing you know guitar and singing for you know a number of years and and i could kind of figure out the the the, the structure of the harmonica you know how it was made up of uh of chords and i could find the scale on it i could You know, I even stumbled across a couple of cool effects like maybe a train whistle or a train rhythm or something like that. And you know, once you do that then I was just hooked and I I couldn't I couldn't get enough of it. So I just carried one with me everywhere and whenever I got a chance I'd pull it out and work on it. Um became like a yeah, Yeah. it became like an obsession. And then
0: Yeah, that's that's cool. And you know, a lot of musicians it's like you can't carry around a piano. (laughs) No. (laughs) <laughs> and, and, you know, even a, even a guitar is pretty cumbersome, right. but you know, harmonica just goes right in your I well, know, yeah, so,
1: it's, that, was a, that was really one of the big attractions for me was that portability, you know, um, you could take it anywhere, always, always be making some music wherever you were.
0: Yeah. Well, I saw on your website, you've received a Dove Award and nine nominations, but, uh, what's the most meaningful accolade that you've been honored with? I know, you know, sometimes, um, you know, there's a, a sentimental, uh, you know, value to them that that other people don't don't realize.
1: Uh, yeah, you know, uh, I really haven't gotten too many awards and and official accolades like that. I, uh, but one that meant something to me, pr- pretty big, was about uh, six or seven years ago. I was at a um, harmonica convention. There's an organization called SPA which is a, an acronym that stands for the Society for the Preservation and Advancement of the Harmonica. It's been around for 50 years or more. And um, wow. and it's a, it's an international organization that attracts harmonica players from all over the world. And every year they have a convention that kind of moves around from city to city. Um,
0: Do they have a time when, you know, 10,000 harmonica players <laughs> all play the same song at the same time? No, <laughs> well, it's
1: not quite 10,000, but it's... <laughs> but it is usually about three or four hundred harmonica players in attendance at this thing. And they sort of just take over a hotel and, um, you know, for about a week. <laughs> and every night there are performances. And then during the day, there's workshops and and all this jamming going on. I mean, if you walked into it as somebody that wasn't a participant, you would think you'd, you'd, you'd walked into a Far Side cartoon or something. It's just like... <laughs> I mean, there's harmonicas in the lobby. There, you know, you get on the elevator, and there's a jam going on. And you know, as you're going up, it's just they're they're everywhere, and kind of drive you nuts unless you love the instrument. But um, but every year they give out <laughs> awards, and um, one of the one of the awards is like um, uh, harmonica player of the year, and uh, it's, a, it's a prestigious award among these harmonica players because it's just a way of being honored by uh your peers and some of the you know mm-hmm. some of the greatest professionals and practitioners of harmonica play in the world um so i i, I got that award one year in 2014 um and that oh, wow. was and it just came out of the blue i i mean people people say a lot about my harmonica player and um and, and you know, I am somewhat accomplished on it, but I mean, in that world, there are some incredible maestros who can play everything from, you know, uh, they classical music, jazz players. It's really an amazing universe of of all kinds of styles, and um, it's a wor- it's a world instrument. Uh, so, I mean, I've heard everything from. Uh, Klezmer music to Asian music to um, you know uh, jazz, classical, blues, country, ethnic music of all kinds played on the harmonica and, and with and with an astonishing ability. So so yeah, I mean um, I don't I don't know if maybe they were just trying to <laughs> maybe they were just trying to encourage me a little bit. But they but they gave me an award. And I, I felt great about getting that. Well, I've
0: heard a good bit of your testimony uh, as we've spoken over the years, and you introduced me to Eugene Peterson. So thank you for that. Um, but that being the, the case, when I found this quote from Eugene, I immediately thought of you because it seemed to be what you were conveying to me in telling your story of faith. Uh, but he said, One way to define spiritual life is getting so tired and fed up with yourself you go on to something better which is following Jesus.
1: <laughs> that's, a, that's a good quote.
0: Oh yeah. yeah, he's got so many so many good ones. Uh um, yeah. I really enjoyed the, uh, some of his his audio uh, book material but mm-hmm. um, but I, you know, I know we've got a lot more to get to but just in you know a, a few sentences could you kind of tell your your story of faith and
1: Sure. Um Yeah, you know, I was raised in the church, in the Southern Baptist Church in Macon, Georgia, and, you know, we were a church-going family, so hardly missed a Sunday, and usually were there for, you know, prayer meetings, and then, um, you know, the youth groups, and I was in choir, all those things, and by the time I was uh, an adolescent, my um, parents were having a pretty difficult marriage, and... And it was, you know, without going into all the complications of that, between that and what was just going on in the world around me in general, which was uh I mean besides, you know, uh puberty and <laughs> and all yeah. the stuff that goes along with that, there was also you know it was crazy times in the in America. It was the Vietnam War, there was um you know, um there were racial issues, civil rights. Oh, well, that sounds a,
0: familiar. Yeah, yeah.
1: And <laughs> there was a a, a, um, a youth culture that was, you know, kind of fed up with authority and, their, you know, their parents' generation and the mess they were making of things. So there was that, you know, that counterculture, that revolution going on, and then there was a sexual revolution and drugs in the mix, and it was just, all this stuff was happening at once. And... Um, the church that I was, the church life that I was a part of just didn't seem to be able to keep up with it, um, give me good enough answers. Yeah. Um, And so, uh, by the time I was, you know, in high school, even though I might still be attending church with my parents, I was, I was discounting it for the most part. And then by the time I went off to college, I had just basically turned my back on it and um, sort of entered a, Kind of an agnostic period, mm-hmm. and um, and also a very rebellious period. I was starting to use drugs and you know experiment with sex and drugs and all that kind of stuff, and 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 basically that lasted throughout my twenties. Um, and by the mid, but by uh, you know by the time I was about twenty five or so, I had made so many bad choices and had hurt myself and other people in the process that. I was willing to kind of go, well, maybe there was, <laughs> maybe there's something in religion that could help me. And by this, you know, I was really not thinking about Christianity per se. I was just thinking in the world of, you know, uh, Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, you know, what did all the world religions have to say? And so I was going to kind of choose and pick and choose whatever yeah, I thought. Lo-
0: looking for relevancy.
1: yeah. And the place I went first was the Bible because probably I'm just laziness because I knew more about it than anything else. And I started, I wanted to find out about Jesus. So I knew the Gospels would be the story of Jesus. So I started reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And uh was sort of captivated. You know, this was like the first time since Sunday school as a kid that I was hearing these stories and reading a narrative uh, that had, you know, I mean, it perplexed me a lot because of you know whether it was a parable or or you know whatever was going on. I just didn't know much about the Bible or 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 the history around it or any of that. But there was enough. Jesus said enough to grab my imagination to make me want to keep reading. And within um, within a short time, um, I met a. Uh, Christian, he was a new, he was newly converted himself, and he was in the bars and taverns that I was playing my music at, and at the time, and he invited me to a Bible study at his house. So I started going there, um, and uh, because I was curious, Um, and what he described, I I didn't think any of my cool friends would be there, so I wouldn't be found out. Um, (laughs) I mean, the last thing I want anybody to know is that I was interested in the Bible. But I started going there, and there was all this sort of riffraff like me attending this Bible study. You know, hippies and and uh, it, it felt a little more. In retrospect, it felt more like a like an AA meeting than it did a church meeting or a Bible study. You know, we'd meet on this guy's front porch, and it'd be you know he'd have coffee, and we could smoke our cigarettes and. Drink our coffee and all, and then eventually he'd say, "Okay, put them out. Come on in. We're gonna start studying the Bible." (laughs) And uh, we uh, we'd go into his living room, and he had a he he went to the Presbyterian Church in Macon and had talked one of the one of the um, associate pastors into coming over and teaching the Bible to whoever he could get to show up at his house. And you know, there was about a dozen or so of us that would come on a pretty regular basis. And uh, and it felt safe enough for us all to ask questions that questions that we were wrestling with, you know, like how can you know this is true, or or um, you know, what does the Bible have to say about sex and pot smoking, and you know all and and, and uh, it was just really a good open time and it and it allowed me to I mean I, I would have never asked these kinds of questions had we been in a church building you know
0: oh yeah I think that's one of the reasons that uh, ministries like uh, Robbie Zacharias who just passed away you know why mm-hmm. this these open forums where you can present questions and right you know not not be afraid of you know opening a can of worms right it's so important and I think I think churches need to avail themselves of that more uh, well,
1: you know, uh, it's, it's kind of hard for the church as an institution to, I think, to, to create that sort of space.
0: Well, uh, I, I, don't, I don't mean, you know, um, you know, for the church as a whole to move toward it, but I mean more the people in the church,
1: yeah, right, you know, right. yeah, be willing
0: I, I, to answer the hard questions, because there are I, hard questions.
1: Yeah, I do too, and I think the way we do that is just learn that um, as lay people— I mean, that's a part of what it means to be a witness. Is you know, it, you're always looking for those opportunities um, in your just normal everyday conversations with people. Whether it's yep. you know, over a meal or in the workplace or whatever, there'll be instances where you can start talking about um, these issues and what the Bible has to say about them, what Jesus has to say about them. You know, so so anyway, the um, I think I think. The problem that I have, and that a lot of people have, is we want to sort of compartmentalize our religious life away from our secular life. Yeah, and that's 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 a, you know <laughs> nothing's going to happen that way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyway, this was this was a great example because I, I was I was going home from those Bible studies with a lot to think about, and with and I was continuing to live a rebellious life. Making bad choices and all this and but yet I had a conscience, and I had a and the guilt was piling up, and you know eventually I came home from one of those those bible studies and and I just looked at my life and I prayed the first prayer I'd probably ever prayed. I'd prayed since you know high school, and it was kind of like, okay, if you're out there, then here I am and I'm ready, bring it on and <laughs> let's get this thing going. And, and all I know is I meant it and, um, and I just waited to see what would happen. And, you know, it was like the desires to read the Bible, go to church. They, they, they didn't get weaker. They got stronger. And, yep. um, and before long, I, you know, Vicky and I were dating at the time, my wife and, before long, I was talking to her about it and and um, then we were getting married and she she had a faith that had sort of she already had a faith that she had come to in high school and it had sort of just uh, lain dormant for a, a, a few years from her college years on yeah. but uh, but her it, she, her faith rekindled as mine sort of came alive for the first time. And um, and then we got married and moved to Nashville. And uh, the guy who, who ran that Bible study knew of a church in Nashville to suggest. And we started going there. And it was a Presbyterian church, Christ Presbyterian church, which was the mother church of Christ Community Church that I mentioned earlier. Yeah. But we started going there and, and we're embraced by some beautiful people that just, you know, <laughs> saw that we were, a couple of lost sheep that needed <laughs> needed fellowship and teaching and all that. And, um, and there began our life together um, in, in marriage and in Christ.
0: Well, that's, that's great. And, you know, you was talking about uh, your uh, growing up years and how you were kind of disillusioned with the, uh, the things going on in the world. And one of your best songs, in my humble opinion, um man against man mm-hmm. and i i know you wrote that many years ago but it seems yeah. like it's um as timely as it ever was but um could you just briefly talk about that song and and how it came about
1: yeah um yeah it was gosh it was written in 30 years ago now uh i was oh well i didn't
0: realize it was that long
1: yeah i was I was probably only, you know, a couple of years into going out as a Christian artist and playing concerts and mainly in churches and stuff. And um, I went back, and most of what I was doing the first couple of years especially uh, was playing in the Midwest because I had been sort of introduced to the to Christian audiences in general by Bill Gaither. So mm-hmm. I was playing, you know... Uh, like I say, through the Midwest mostly, because that's a lot of where the um, uh, a lot of what Bill's influence was keenly felt there. And uh, but occasionally, I'd get invited down to the Deep South somewhere, and I got invited to uh, a church down in Natchez, Mississippi. Mm-hmm. And it was, I think it was the first time since becoming a believer that I had gone back and sort of observed the, the sort of caste system of the South. Um, as I, and it was at, this was at a, like a a big church and they had a, a choir banquet and the only black people there were the ones that were waiting on the tables and they were dressed in white livery. And it was still very, it just looked like it, it looked like a Southern country club more than a Southern, more than a church, you know? And then I just started realizing that, uh, wow, this is, that's the way we do things down here in the South. We, Uh, We racially segregate and um, even though by this time, you know, integration um, and civil rights were, you know, almost a generation along and, but you could see how the old ways were not dying and the old mindsets were not dying and, you know, I had conversations with some of the people and um, I just remember coming home disturbed about how much was still intact, of that old Jim Crow system, and that old way of seeing the world. And um, when I walked in the house after that weekend, there was a um, miniseries playing on TV called Mississippi Burning, it starred Gene Hackman. It was and it was based on some true events from that uh, civil rights era. And every time they would break, go to a um, to a to a commercial break. They would show a burning cross, and it would say "Mississippi Burning," and then they. So that oh. was sort of the logo of this movie, and I just remember being incensed by that image, just thinking, yeah. "Wow, here's 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 an emblem emblem which, for the early Christians, um, was was meant to be this amazing emblem of solidarity among the people who were." being set free by what Jesus had done on the cross. Yep. And, um, and it was something that was that was going to be meaningful to every man, woman, tribe, and tongue in the world, and it was going to obliterate the things that divide us and the hostilities rather than reinforce them. But here it was being used in this way in this clannish way that was just an abomination and I just I was just just incensed by it and so over the next couple of days as I was riding around the the words to that song just sort of just started kind of pouring out of me and I would write them down and you know within a couple of days I think I had the verses um I, I didn't have any really music in mind mm-hmm. but there was just a you know I'd, I'd written a poem basically that was a lyric and then I started working on the music and 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 that song got written that way. And um, I, if I can jump ahead a minute and just say that, you know, the song got recorded up probably on my next record, which was called uh, Sojourner's Song." And that mm-hmm. song, I mean that 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 album won a Dove Award for um, I think Best Country Christian Country Record or something. Okay. That
0: yeah, I was wondering what Dove Award.
1: Yeah. So it was a double award winning album and all. And uh but I remember at the time when I would go out and try to sing that song in a concert, mm-hmm. especially if I was in the South, that it just created the most uneasy feeling. Um and especially it, if I included, I can
0: only imagine it's a uh it's a it's a hard hitting yeah. Song And it really doesn't stop, that one thing I love about it, it doesn't stop at black and white, it doesn't stop at race, you know, uh, it, 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 it's bred and our fathers passed on to our sons and the privileged, deprived and the genius or the simpleton, it can raise its ugly head in nearly everyone. I mean, it just really leaves no, <laughs> right. it leaves nobody alone, and I love that about it
1: right and and I was trying to address a larger issue than just the black white issue in America because and by this time I had done some world traveling I had, I had gone to um I'd gone to some of these places where there was this these centuries of enmity between people you know or whether you're talking about you know Catholics and Protestants in Northern Ireland or where you're talking yeah. about uh um Colonialists and natives in um, in some place like South Africa, where there was apartheid, uh, or uh, the Middle East, where there was, you know, Jew and Arab, and I mean, but you can just look around the globe and just see, man, this is a this is a universal problem. Everywhere you go, there's man against man, and that's why I mean, this the title itself shows that I'm I'm trying to address something that's bigger than just a race problem, or uh, Black-white problem, a Jew-Gentile problem, but it. But oh it's, yeah, I
0: mean you you go all the way back to the to the root. I mean you have a husband and wife, you know, in the garden. They're the only ones there, and yeah, the, you I mean know, Cain, it's like it was her fault, and <laughs> and and then yeah. and then Cain and Abel, you know, Cain and Abel. So yeah, it's it's not just a, a skin color right. issue, but anyway, I, I have yeah. um, I found some of those audiences where. You know, whatever I do, the song it leaves an uneasiness in the room, and the thing is, it's like those are the places that need to hear it, but it, it's no fun. It's no yeah. fun being on the stage, and
1: <laughs> well, and and you know, you I, know. I, I I don't usually do it in concert because it's uh, it, it opens a can of worms. Yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's it's a can of worms we need to deal with, but I'm not sure that a you know a concert gives me enough time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, to, to do it. But I'm glad the song has been written and it got out there. And this is the main reason I think for me is I think within a couple of years after trying to sing that song and, and just being so uncomfortable with it myself, one day I just did a sort of an inventory of my own life and thought, you know, if I believe this so much, then why don't I have more friends that don't look like me? You know, where, where are all my black friends? Where are all my Hispanic friends? Where are my Asian friends? You know, I didn't have any, all, all my friends were of, from my, you know, white Northern European, um, extracted world. And so that was, uh, that was a good, a good reckoning for me to have, um, uh, because it made me wonder, you know, how much on board am I with what God is doing in the world? which is reconciling all men to himself and, um, and being reconciled myself with, these, with people that and ha- finding solidarity with, uh, with the minorities and with the people that, that are, are struggling because they're not a part of the dominant group. So it made me start thinking those thoughts for the first time and examining myself. And, and I came up short.
0: Oh, there, there's loads of songs that are just written because the songwriter's just trying to write a song, or they're trying to impose themselves into a situation, and and sometimes that works, but you know more often than not, those songs will be forgotten. I think I think it's the songs that the songwriter is challenging themselves, or it's something they have just come through, something God is working on with them. You know, those are the are the most lasting, influential, hard hitting. Honest lyrics that you'll ever find, and um, and yeah, I just you know that and that song's done that for me. I've you know I don't ever sing it that I'm not kind of uh, <laughs> looking looking at myself and mm-hmm. uh, and just right you know, repenting all over again. So thank you for writing it. Thank you for having the hard conversations with other people and with yourself.
1: <laughs> and, yeah, well, it's kind of like what th- this. Life of repentance is about, isn't it? Miles oh, yeah, is, it's not a one
0: time it? prayer. It's no. a, it's sanctification every day. Yeah, being washed clean.
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: Yeah. Uh, but talking about the songwriting, uh, what percentage of your own music have you written?
1: You know, you know, I've probably written 100 songs or so over my 30 years of recording. Um, I think early on in the first you know, 15 years, uh, probably most of my, of a record would have been, uh, either my compositions or co-writes. Uh-huh. But I think in the last, you know, 15 years, I've done a lot more of, um, you know, other kinds of projects that, that didn't require me to be a, a, a singer songwriter. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I did, like I did a hymns project and I did a, a song in tribute to my musical roots called Rufus and uh, kind of <laughs> yeah. a follow, I followed that up with another one called happy man. And I've done a, you know, some harmonica records and, um, uh, I did an album a few years ago called Sunday, um, which was sort of a continuation of what I'd started on hymns and prayer songs. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I think I had one, one original song on that, and the rest of them were, you know, just songs that had helped me be a worshiper for the last twenty years. Yeah. So well, yeah. Uh,
0: I, I, yeah. All the all those albums, I just I, I love them. Now. Uh, are you are you still writing any as far as new new songs?
1: No, I'm not really. I mean, every once in a while, I'll get an idea and you know make a, a note to myself somewhere, you know, <laughs> uh, do a little voice memo or something, and thinking I'll come back to it, but. I really haven't um written to any extent in the last 10 or 15 years you know a song creeps out about every four or five years i think the last one i wrote um was a co-write with um some friends julie lee and uh, kenny hudson uh we wrote a song that was on my last album it was called all things sad and um and I love the song. I love what what we were able to produce together. Mm-hmm. And it it, it 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 to me it it kind of um, it provides almost like a summary of my life in in this song. So, but that's that that was probably five six years ago that that song was yeah. written. Yeah. So yeah, there you go. I'm not I'm not much of a songwriter these days.
0: Well, considering um, you know the quantity of songs that a lot of people will churn out i'd say uh you know out of a hundred i mean you're you've got a really good percentage rate of those that will be here long after you're gone Um, well you know mary mary did you know home where i belong are just a couple that come to mind um but yeah so that's a pretty good track record
1: well thanks i mean yeah there's a few in there that um that I think have stood the test of time pretty well and hold up all right. Man, there's plenty of them that need to be buried in the past. <laughs> so um there um, you know, I've I, I did I think I progressed as a songwriter. I got better at the craft and uh and then I think my theology got a little better as I went along too. So um so yeah. Um it's interesting. My last album was called Looking Back and and i one of the purposes of that record was to kind of glean some of those songs of 30 years of writing and say uh, you know these kind of still hold up hold up enough uh, well enough for me to kind of want to revisit them and you mm-hmm. know come up with some new fresh arrangements and record them again
0: what what's a song you wish you had written
1: oh <laughs> You know, it would probably be a secular song. You know, something like Moon River or Wichita Lineman, or you know those. Because I'm just amazed at really great popular songwriting. Um, or you know, a, a Beatles song like um, Yesterday. You know, those are. It's it's uh, it's amazing that a song. Uh, these kind of songs, for me anyway, um, they sort of exist outside of time. They're not, they don't get old. You know, musically they sound, they continue to sound fresh, and you know the, the lyric writing and the subject matter is just you know of a of a caliber that makes every generation want to hear them and and keep recording them and singing them. You know, so though you know it'd be, it'd be something like that uh, as far as a as far as a gospel song, let's see, it might be something like, uh, uh, this is my father's world, which is, I mean, a hymn. Oh but, yeah. But I mean, uh, I just, Bab, I love that.
0: Babcock. Uh, Babcock. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I think he was right. I, I can't remember his first name. Yeah. Kind of yeah. an old, old timey. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, talking about, uh, you know, secular, a lot of people may not know you started with Jerry Reed and, um, I just yeah. got to throw this in there. I think it's just the coolest thing that my version of "Talk About the Good Times" was the first time you played harmonica on that song on a recording. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm am I'm gonna I'm gonna own that. But uh, of course, I went and turned it into a wild quartet piece. So if Jerry was still here, he may have sued me. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah. tell, tell just a, a minute or two about touring with Jerry. I, I've heard some of those stories, and uh, it sounded like it was a wild time. Really pretty uh, fun.
1: It was, it was a break of a lifetime for me. I mean, I was about, you know, 30 years old when I got that job. I'd been down and making, you know, playing a, a little circuit of bars and clubs and taverns, you know, through Georgia and South Carolina. I mean, getting nowhere fast, but, but I was learning my craft. And um, uh, I had a friend who had gone to Nashville a few years earlier and um, sort of, established himself somewhat and eventually landed a place in Jerry's band. This guy's name was Buddy Blackman, and Buddy's a great musician and great friend because he called me one day and said, hey, if you can get up here in eight hours time, I I can get you an audition for a place in the band, and uh, I was literally walking out the door with my car packed and ready to go to Virginia and do a gig up there with a friend who had asked me to do this? You know, play at a ski resort. This is the middle of winter, and I ca- I called her up and I said, "Can you do that gig without me?" Because I got this great opportunity, to- and she said, "Yeah, by all means, go." And so I jumped in the car, went to Nashville, passed the audition, and within a week was on Austin City Limits with with Jerry Reed. I it was like you know, oh, wow. I had to pinch That's myself. Quick. It was such a whirlwind, and um, and I was a huge. I was a huge fan of Jerry. I mean by this time I I mean I I not only knew him like like most of the public knew him as a you know a, a character you know who could be in a Burt Reynolds movie or write a song like Amos Moses and when you're hot you're hot but most people didn't know and still don't that Jerry was just one of the greatest guitar players to, to ever make an impact on country music. I mean right up there with people like Chet Atkins uh, so, you know, I knew him as a musical genius and to be in his band and, you know, um, uh, try to learn from that, glean a little bit of that. And also I'm um, an amazing entertainer, great with an audience, a great songwriter. Um, uh, so he was, he was just doing all these things that I aspired to do. And I was in that band for about four years traveling all over the country and being on you know on tv specials and being in the studio with him and just watching him do what he you know watching and observing for the most part and looking back on it i wish i had asked a whole lot more questions Mm -hmm. Uh, um, i was you know for whatever reason i was afraid to to ask questions about everything from you know Playing music to songwriting to get, getting him to tell me stories about his very storied career, you know. Yeah. Uh, but we you, did get to be friends later on, and and I started making up for a little bit of lost time then. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, do you feel like your uh, guitar playing has been influenced by him? Did you pick up any licks oh, yeah. from him, or?
1: Yeah, he was a thumb picker. Um, I mean, he could play any any style, but but he was one like Chet, like Merle Travis would put a thumb pick on and would get this sort of thumping bass line going and then with this with his fingers would pick, you know, his melodies and rhythms. And so that's a that's a style of playing that you hear a lot in old country music, you know, from Merle Travis, Chet Atkins.
0: Yeah, it's kind of a
1: Yeah. Yeah, you get this So so you get that sort of a thumping I don't have a guitar handy or I would do a little bit for you, but it was, um, it was a good way for one person to accompany themselves on a, on a guitar because yeah. you're, you got a bass line going and then you got uh, the rhythms and melodies being filled in with the fingers. So you're almost like a little one man band on your, uh, on your guitar and you pat your foot and you got even more to add in there. So it was, it was, I started writing a lot of songs and I, and learning songs and employing that method um uh you know songs like green tree or um or a Mark heard's song "Rise from the ruins where i I do a lot of that sort of that style of finger picking um so yeah, I learned a lot of of that i I owe all of that to just being around jerry and and loving that style of music that he did so well.
0: Well, if they, if the people didn't know you from uh, your time with Jerry, I think uh, probably a lot of the Christian world knows you from the Gator Homecoming tour, and, uh, I mean, Bill is a remarkable man in many ways, and I I feel like, in many respects, he breathed life into a somewhat dying art form, and uh, bought it decades more of of viability, that's just my opinion, but... um, what, what's something you've learned from from Bill? I mean, you spending so much time with him.
1: You know, I'll tell you a story about Bill. This was um, I toured with him from like '87 to '92. I was a regular part of his tour, and you know, by this this was before the Homecoming videos started.
0: Oh wow, I didn't realize that. But yeah, that's that's right. '87. Yeah,
1: yeah. Okay. So so really, the the trio, the Bill Gaither trio, is still. Uh, around it was Bill. When I got in the band, it was Bill and Gloria and Gary McSpadden, and then the vocal band consisted of Bill and Gary and Michael English and Lornell Harris. Oh wow!
0: Okay.
1: And they had yeah. they had a, a pretty pretty heavy pop sound. I mean, they were like the Imperials and others. They were trying to you know get a leg up in the in the contemporary Christian scene which was more you know adult contemporary in its musical makeup and um so so they were doing that and and occasionally they'd you know get something that would work through the radio and all but they were you know bill would always felt frustrated about it because he was um his heart was really with that old quartet singing and oh yeah (laughs) you know all, (laughs) all those groups like the statesman and and uh, Happy Goodmans, and you know, he's all that a kind of walking
0: stuff. encyclopedia when it oh comes to that stuff. Yeah, it's, yeah,
1: he loved, and and I didn't know any of that world. I had not, I'd not paid any attention to it growing up, uh, but I, I remember it, towards the end of that five year run with him, and he was watching his crowds get smaller and smaller and smaller as they were losing their influence with that younger uh, audience base out there. Um, but he also noticed that whenever he would take the vocal band or the trio and they do one of their old chestnuts, I mean that the crowd would go nuts. They that they still love that stuff. Mm-hmm. So that first homecoming record that was entitled Homecoming, you know, he got he he really was seeing that as sort of a swan song. I think he was he and Glory were thinking that their their time was about up. You know, they've been doing this for twenty or thirty years already, and. Yeah. Maybe it was time for them to just retire and write songs or whatever, and <laughs> they did this. Al- out. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I know because they did this album, and you know, long story short, you know, it had it had uh, Howard and Vestal and and uh, George and Glenn of the Cathedrals, and um, Larry Gatlin, I think, was on it, and mm-hmm. and yeah. and Jake and Jake Hess and Hovey, and so and it. It struck a nerve out there. It was just all these people that contemporary Christian music had just forgotten about—not yeah. um, only the, the players, but the people that listened to and loved that music—and within, you know, within a couple of videos, uh, there was this huge, uh, huge groundswell of, of popular um, support for what they were doing. And um, I just started being—you know—Bill invited me back to. By this time, I was doing my own thing, not a part of their tour, but I was hearing about it growing, and st- started going to some of the video shoots at Bill's invitation, and and getting acquainted with this world that I I knew nothing about, and some of these characters like J.D. Sumner and you know the 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 uh, the stamps and and. Um, I mean, uh, you know, Hobies and the Moses and the, <laughs> I mean, the well, names it's, it's all...
0: funny. We're, we're practically reversed because that's the only world I knew. Yeah. <laughs> and it was, it's only, you know, tw- after I was 25 or so, I started finding out, oh, there's a whole other world out here. So, right, right, yeah, I'm just yeah. now finding out about Jerry Reed.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it was, it was a good education for me to have because I, I, you know, I really didn't. I didn't know anything about that world or how that had contributed to where we are today, as far as gospel music goes. And, and uh, you know, I started paying attention and learning a little more from Bill, asking questions. And um, and then occasionally, doing he would invite me out to you know be on a Christmas tour or um, to do an occasional um, tour date with him. So. So that and that's the kind of the way our our relationship has continued over these last thirty years is through the through the homecoming uh, association and um, yeah. and the videos and all. And so yeah, it's been a I mean Bill and Gloria are dear friends and I, I would not have a career a leg to stand on had had they not um, you know opened up their platform to me and dozens of others like me. Um, and giving us a chance in front of their audience.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, Gloria is such a, a lyricist, and uh, you know, and, and kind of quiet behind the scenes uh, for the most part. But I mean, do you have a Gloria story?
1: Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think oh, you got fifty-six of it.
0: We just got time for one.
1: <laughs> let me tell you. you asked me what had, uh, the story I wanted to tell you about Bill and all that background. Um, oh yeah. Bill and I were taking a walk one day and this was, a, this came about the time I was leaving him in 92 and right before the homecoming thing was about to take off. And he and I were just taking a walk, talking one day and uh, I was frustrated because by this time um, I, I, it was proven in, I, I was proven in the, in the music industry as somebody who could not really sell a lot of records. I didn't translate well to Christian radio and um but I had a, a growing fan base, you know, and the phone was ringing. People wanted me to come and play and all this. So, so I was kind of frustrated because I couldn't get all the, all the parts to work together. So I was asking Bill, what should I do? And Bill just said, buddy, just be true to yourself and let the world come to you instead of trying to figure out how you can come to the world. And as the best, that's the best thing I ever heard because I think Bill knew that there was an authentic voice in me, as a songwriter, as a, as a performer, musician, all of those things. And he said that's what needs to develop. You know, you don't need to try to figure out how to fit contemporary Christian music or how to fit Southern gospel or, you know, there's a he he recognized an authentic thing. Going on in me, and he said, "You know, nurture that and 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 grow that and and." Uh, so he kind of helped me believe in myself. Yeah, yeah. Uh, getting back to Gloria, um, Gloria and, and Bill and I, uh, we used to have these great conversations. Uh, usually in the early in the morning when we were on tour, and we'd find a coffee shop or breakfast place, and and our breakfasts would last about two hours of, because we'd start. <laughs> talking, you know, we'd have the newspaper out or we'd be talking about, you know, what we had, you know, what had happened in the show the night before or, but it was always really stimulating conversations and Gloria, I mean, She, those are deep waters. And so we'd start talking about, you know, theology or some, you know, thorny passage in the Bible or, or some social ill, um, and I mean, that's kind of where "I don't belong" came from. Um, mm. Was a, a conversation we had. And interesting, uh, this was when race riots were breaking out across America because of the Rodney King episode yeah. in L.A. Um, and and I mean, those were huge, bad, um, you know, violent and destructive uh, demonstrations that were going on. And we were just so. Uh, we were just so sad about the state of our country. Um, you know, the, the uh, first Gulf War was happening around the same time. There's all this stuff that was going on that was bad headlines. And um,
0: it's, it's if a song came out of, of that, I think there may be another song in you. From today, <laughs> so well, maybe, just be looking maybe, for
1: it. <laughs> all right. Well, it, the, the, those lyrics came strictly from glory, but we had a conversation one morning where we talked about this, and uh, and and we it was one of those things where it started out we were very pessimistic as we looked at the world around us and all, but then we finally it was like the Holy Spirit reminded us, <laughs> you know, that's why you're here. You, that's why you're my salt and light in this world is. Mm-hmm god loves this world he he wants to rescue this world restore it bring it to its new creation uh, new recreation and he's invited you to get in on that as as followers of jesus as as jesus people in the world and so we started talking along those lines and about uh, a week or two went by and um, i got a letter one day from gloria with the, the lyrics of for i don't belong attached to it saying this uh this came out of our conversation. See if you can come up with something. And, you know, mm-hmm. um, I started writing it immediately. I think within, you know, within a day, I had something to present to her and she liked it. And I love that song. That's a, that's a song that um, that I still, you know, I, I think it speaks well today uh, or anytime. It's just a good, you know, a good marriage of, of lyric and melody.
0: Yeah, it's, it's it's a great one. Um, but one thing I wanted to ask you about, uh, you have managed to do this very well and to great success, is, is just how you cross all genre lines. I mean, you can go play at the Harmonica Convention or <laughs> at a mm. country venue or, or folk, jazz, blues. You know, you've got some black gospel stuff. I mean, it was really very few styles that I've not heard you delve into at least a little bit, and, and you do it so seamlessly. Now, whether this makes the podcast interview or not, I'm just asking for me, but uh, <laughs> but since I have you know, a large vocal range and, and a broad interest in many differing styles of music, I, and I, also I tend to do thematic albums, so this one will have more of a country flair, and this one will have more of a classical flair, and right. this one more southern gospel, I, you know, I've covered many bases, and, and people will often comment on the variety in my concerts. Now, some may not be saying it as a compliment. It may be more of a, hmm. uh, wow, I don't know what you are, sort of a thing. Um, but do you have any nuggets of wisdom on how to navigate between the wide, wide world of music and uh, being sure that you're not overextending yourself or asking too much of your audience?
1: Uh well I mean I don't know how much wisdom this is but the um in my case uh I think I think about 15 years into maybe not maybe about 10 years into doing being a Christian artist a recording artist and putting my stuff out and going out there I realized that I was actually s- sort of shrinking as a as an artist at least in in my my own assessment of things, because all I was doing was writing, you know, Christian songs. All I was doing was playing to Christian audiences. All I was trying to do was make a Christian record. And, um, and, and yet I knew that what I had been raised on, the the music, musical influence were everything from, you know, the Beatles to early, early rock and roll, rockabilly to, um, Motown and rhythm and blues and, uh, you know, Almond Brothers, and then there was country music by the time I was you know nineteen or twenty years old, I was discovering mm-hmm. country folk, all this stuff and and I was learning how to play you know bits and pieces of all of it. It was all influencing me and getting into my music and i and I was creating little hybrid worlds you know that incorporated all these different elements and uh-huh. so it as What I meant earlier by saying I was shrinking as an artist is I wasn't really trying to expand on that. What I was trying to do was trying to get all of that into this little bitty box called Christian music. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and it was frustrating. It was dissatisfying um, because I knew that there was just more I w- that I wanted to experience as an artist, as a musician,
0: well, yeah I was kind of wondering how much of it was just naturally came out of you and how much of it was on purpose. I'm going to be a broad uh, artist and and I'm going to you know try a lot of different things
1: yeah I mean I tell you miles I felt I felt kind of paralyzed there when I made that realization that wow well, I'm kind of trapped in this box I didn't know how to get out of it because the only reputation I had was in that world and yet if you know. I remember one time going to a bluegrass festival at the end of the nineties and I had not been to a bluegrass festival since I was like in my twenties. And here I was in my forties now, 20 years later going and going, Oh yeah, this is why I love this stuff so much. Listen, all these jam sessions and listen, all these people doing all these old cool tunes, you know, that their grandparents Mm -hmm. did and, (laughs) you know, and, um, and, and, uh, it, it was just like, gosh, I, I forgot how much I love this. And, um, I remember calling um, Ricky Skaggs one day. and I said, hey, man, would you have lunch with me? And, because I really wanted to figure out how to be a part of that world. So I had lunch with him, and I asked him, I said, I said, Ricky, you kind of know. I mean, we weren't fast friends or anything, but he had played on a record of mine. We knew who each other were. And uh-huh. uh, so I said, hey, you know, if, if, if I wanted to go knock on the door of that world of roots music and bluegrass and all, would my reputation as a Christian artist help me or hinder me? And Ricky said, well, don't be discouraged, but I think it would probably hinder you. And um, he said, let me explain. He said, I think when that world looks at what Christian artists are doing, a lot of time what they see is people singing along with a track or, um, um, and you know, using... Using some things that are that are not that don't require them to, to do it all themselves in that moment.
0: Yeah, I, on, on I, st- I feel like uh, I feel like at least in in terms of my world, it's like I always the first question is, okay, what what do you do? What, what what style do you sing in? I can't put it in a nice tidy box, and people like nice tidy boxes,
1: Right, right and so. Right.
0: You know, it's like I just have to send them to the website and say, "Watch this video," and it's kind of got a little bit of everything. Right. Um, you know, yeah. it, it's, it's not a one-word thing because if you say "contemporary," people hear Seven Eleven songs. If you say "Southern Gospel," they hear this, and and and, you, and there's really no in between.
1: Right. And, well, and you know, and Ricky was he was he was nice in giving me this this little bit of criticism, but he was also saying, I mean, because he said. Hey, I, I know that there are some people that just, I mean, this is their calling. I mean, they, you know, they got to they're going to sing all gospel all the time and all. And I said, yeah, I know. But I, he, I said, I don't think I'm one of those because I, I, I still want to play Sally Gooden. I still want to, you know, <laughs> sing Wabash Cannonball. And, uh, and, and he, and he said, well, you can, and he said, but uh, you're going to have to prove yourself to that world if you want to go knock, you know, knock on that door mm-hmm. cause, because, because, uh, they need to see more than what you've been able to do as a christian musician. Yeah. So, it was a good thing for me to hear and it made me kind of go back to the drawing board and figure out, okay, if I'm if I'm just going to land with no reputation, what 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 do I need to be able to do? And it was like, I need to be able to sing a song in its in its completeness. Um and just relying on me and whatever I'm bringing to the moment, you know, it was just me and my guitar or whether I've got a bass player playing along with me or if I'm playing with a band or whatever, but I can't, um, it's going to be judged on how well that, how well I can do that. So, yeah. so that's, that's kind of, that reset my, my, um, reasons for recording and for being a performer in a, in a good way. I started realizing that all the music belongs to God. Um, you know, and it doesn't have to, you know, we don't have to sing gospel songs to be legitimate um, as a Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, um, sometimes it's good to sing some songs that are, you know, that convey the blues or, or, or happiness or ever to, as just a good way of, of preparing for for the gospel to hear a, a good gospel song to hear. So, um,
0: oh yeah, so I thought know, about you know seventy percent of the psalms have elements of lament, if not just you know completely absolutely. lament, and and that's you know that's just totally lost on the church. And
1: uh, uh, I listen, think that's sad. I remember going to see Alison Krauss. By the time all this was churning in me, I went to see Alison Krauss at Union Station. Uh, at the Ryman Auditorium one night. And yes they were. this was at the height of her career. They were just, the place was packed, and everybody in there was just uh, a huge fan, including me. Was and, Ron you know, Block with her then? And, yeah, and Ron was with her. And Ron, at the time, was writing just about every album. He would, he'd write a gospel song that they would do. And they were great. And Ron's a great songwriter, and some of these songs were just wonderful Um but they had done a whole night of her hits and all that. And, and you know, just about everyone. They're like murder ballads and, and sad love songs, you know. Uh, it was just one sad tale after another, if you listen to the lyrics of these songs, you know. And then finally, you know, and everybody was loving it. When it was over, you know, they, they finished, they leave the stage. And, of course, we're not going to let them leave. We're getting them back out for an encore. And they all come out, and they put one mic on the stage, and they all stood around it, and, and Ron is playing his guitar, and they they become a gospel quartet and sing one of his songs, and you could drop a, a pin in that place and hear it. Everybody mm. in the place is leaning forward to hear what is this song about, and it's and it was one of Ron's songs that was saying, because of all the sadness in the world, we need a savior to rescue us from the sadness, from the sin, from the mm. from the slavery that this world. Puts on all of us, and um, and I just remember thinking That's, that is genius. I mean, you you get a you get you just ha- help people have a great time, help them think about you know the state of the world for what it is, the way their lives are a mess, and all this kind of thing. and then you come out and go, oh by the way, there's an answer, and his name is Jesus, and then they leave the That's stage, great. and I thought you know that one song may have landed with more. Weight and impact than a whole night of gospel music because, mm, yeah, uh, that's, that's, yeah,
0: that's very interesting.
1: Yeah, anyway.
0: Well, what you know, whenever I think of variety, uh, you know, in, in the Christian world, um, I immediately think of you, I think of Rich Mullins, I think of Michael Card, and I mean, there's a few others, but there's really not that many, and and then there's those. Artists that do one particular sound so well that it becomes uniquely theirs, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Just to to name a couple, uh, Keith Green. I mean, it's like you hear a Keith Green song before you even start singing, it's like, oh, that's Keith Green. (laughs) You know, he just, the way he played the piano and everything, and then, uh, uh, I'd say Andrew Peterson's kind of that way. He just has such a sound and and the way he uses certain instruments and and, and themes. I'm glad you
1: bring him up, because... I mean, I think, you know, An- a- Andrew's a friend, and Andrew's probably in his mid-40s or so. I discovered him about 10, 15 years ago. He's been around writing music since his 20s, um, early 20s. Oh, great and stuff, a, Yeah, and he's a part of a of a artistic community that includes people like Andy Gullihorn, Jill Phillips, Sarah mm-hmm. Groves, uh, just a. That that are, to, in my estimation, the best, the best Christian songwriters out there. Uh, today, I mean, you won't hear them on the radio hardly at all because you know, again, they don't fit the formats.
0: Oh, very well. yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm familiar, and I, I listen to their podcast and uh, yeah, Andrew Osinga and yeah, uh, and, and some of their music, and it's like there's just a whole other world of Christian music that people don't even know about if you listen to k Love or you know, just right. your standard, you know, Sirius XM station.
1: Yeah, it's true, and uh, you know, occasionally one of their songs gets out there. I, I know the the Isaacs on their Christmas album cut Andrew's uh, great song uh, "Labor of Love."
0: Well, and his song uh, "Is He Worthy?" The the liturgical oh, gosh. call and answer. Oh yeah. man, that that is I'm, just
1: that's been one of the best worship songs of the last twenty years. If you ask me, that's just amazing. It, it, it has, it has. Yeah.
0: And the fact that it calls for the congregational response, that yeah. is so lacking in in most uh, most services. That's a whole other conversation. But yeah, it's, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I just I think of you know the ones that are very broad, and I think of the ones that are are just uniquely themselves. And and you know I don't I don't feel like I particularly fall well into either slot. But I'm in. Mean, I'm particularly impressed with what you've done with, you know, the harmonica. You know, people have a stereotype about the harmonica, (laughs) kind of like, you know, the stereotype about the accordion. You know, Jeff has made me love the accordion, (laughs) Jeff Taylor. Yeah. But, you know, you got a standing ovation at Carnegie Hall, you know, with a harmonica. I mean, that's, wow.
1: (laughs) You know, I I tell people the secret to my success as a harmonica player is everybody's low expectation. (laughs) I mean, it's That's like, uh, but, you know, it goes back to, it goes back to what Bill said, you know, be yourself, do do what's true to you. You know, what was true to me when I, when I just tried to, you know, evaluate what I was bringing to the table. It's like, you know, okay, uh, what's your, what's your, what's your main instrument? Uh, harmonica, it's like, and then, okay, well, let's see, uh, what's, what's your you know, what's your style of music like to the average listener out there? And I say, well, they probably think it's kind of country. <clears throat> yeah, that's not going to go anywhere. And then, like, <laughs> who uh, who are you mostly associated with? Uh, the Gaithers. <clears throat> you know, that's not cool. It's it's just like all these things were... I mean, when I evaluated it, I thought, you know, I'm striking out everywhere. And, and Bill was the person to say, no, you're not. That's Those are your strengths. And they may look like weaknesses, but that's where that's where you sneak in and surprise everybody. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's true with every, it, 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 may, it may, not work that, you know, your strength is a, uh, is a, is a weakness like that or an, un, 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 or a, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, an unlikely, I mean, you may have a great set of pipes so that you're, you know, what you need to be singing is heroic songs. Because that's yes, what your voice is, is is made for. It's like, well, man, there's just then the sky's the limit. Go find every song that's the that's the perfect vehicle for your voice and sing it. Mm-hmm. You know, and don't I, and I would say, you know, don't worry about whether it's you know Christian or not. Is it a song that says things that that speaks to the human condition? Um, you know, that might be Old Man River. I mean, that that might be. <laughs> And and I'm and I'm serious. I mean, because these songs are, there's a reason that they strike a chord in the human spirit. Um, you know I, that that song I mentioned, Moon River, um, a little while ago, and that, you know that lyric was written by Johnny Mercer, music by Henry Mancini, and it is the perfect wedding of of music, and and uh, lyric, a melody and lyric. And what it has to say, it says in such a simple, plaintive, um, and universal way um, that it just touches the longings that everybody has. You know, Moon River, wider than a mile, I'm crossing you in style someday. Right away you hear there's a longing. This person feels trapped wherever he is, and that river represents freedom. And as mm-hmm. so right from the first line you're you're brought into the, the story and you you get you identify with the person you know st- uh, and, uh, who's in that first person so so that's a song we're singing and if you got a voice for that then I mean I, I recorded that song one time I did not I think have a voice for that but I had a harmonica for that for that <laughs> melody. And I made a live album. This was way back in 1992. And um, I wanted to have some friends on it. And so my good friend, Tricia Walker, who sings like a bird, I asked her, I said, would you sing Moon River if we did that at this thing? And she said, yeah. And I still, when I listen to that today, I mean, it's just, it's magic. Because her voice is is perfect for that, for that melody and lyric. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, be yourself. Whatever your instrument, whatever your strong suit is, play it and uh and then and then get out of the way don't don't restrict yourself go find some go find some great material
0: well i i have a feeling this won't take you long to answer but i just want to get your uh your feeling on it because i just think i find it hilarious especially springing off of the conversation we've just had what do you think about the whole cultural appropriation thing going on i mean I mean, have you seen that get into the world of music at all? Really, I mean, in, in conversations you've had, because it's like music and food are really the most cross-pollinated things in the world. I, I can't, I can't imagine two things that are more so. But I think it's uh, it's so silly that we live in a in a culture where we can't borrow from one another. Oh yeah, and you know, it's like that's 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 where human strength is. You know, we borrow architecture from here and we borrow, yeah. you know, irrigation and science and all this kind of stuff. But, you know, I, th- I think it was Robbie Zacharias that said, you know, the best way to sum up America specifically is, uh, I forget exactly how he, how he made, painted the picture, but like a, a middle Eastern man standing in a, uh, uh, an American storefront, Mm-hmm. Um, selling kosher tacos. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's like that. That's America, and and yet we we're we're hearing this cry for all these things to be divided and separated yeah. back out. Yeah. Uh,
1: well, it's kind of tricky because I mean, uh, I think let me give you a couple examples. I remember uh, Jeff and I went over to Ireland in um, you know, 2010 or something like that to play. Um some shows. And while we were over there, um, we, we met some people with this, uh, that do this big festival in Scotland called Celtic Connection. It's every winter. And, um, so long story short we got invited back to, to be uh, on this thing. And, and part of it was to do the BBC was there and they were going to, uh, tape us doing a song in a set. that was, they had it dressed up kind of like a, like an Irish pub. And so we were in, so, we started we did you know an Irish tune that um I'd been doing for years and years called the the little Beggar Man oh
0: yeah yeah I know that
1: and yeah, and we did I we mean, did a good version of it um but i I remember thinking yeah, I could just feel the audience while we were doing this and realizing that it was not really landing well I mean if I do this song in America, it always gets a a good response but here mm. I was playing oh. to a bunch of you know, true Celts, and they were kind of like uh, they were. I mean, and, and what I realized later is, that, I mean, they were they were tolerating me, but they were kind of saying, you know, we got musicians that can really do that song, <laughs> <laughs> and they can do it with some authenticity. What we would really like to hear you do is something that's American, <laughs> you know. Wow. And
0: well, uh, well, what is uniquely American? I mean, there's a there's a few. Well, things, but... <laughs> I mean, yeah,
1: I mean. And, and, and they didn't really just shoot us down or anything, but it was one of those instances where I realized that, you know, um, I could have done something that was a little more true to who I am in my hybrid makeup
0: than All trying
1: right. to do a, an Irish tune for a bunch of Irish people. I think, again, you can, uh, you know, a lot of the, um, a lot of the black, black gospel music, especially spirituals, you know, they come out of a place of slavery. And a lot of times they were code language in those in those songs, like, uh, you know, Wade in the Water and um, uh, Swing Low Sweet Chariot. all these songs that that come from that slave era. Uh, And a lot of times they are appropriated by, you know, white musicians. And I've been among them. And we don't stop to think that um, this means something different to us, to a person who has slavery as a part of their legacy. Uh, than it does to a white person who um, the only attachment they would have to that is they were <laughs> were descended from the slave owners so so that's a that's a trickier thing especially now because of what's currently going on I think we need to be kind of careful of how we appropriate uh, I do a song called Rockin' a Weary Land and it's from that era and one of the things that I want to one of the reasons I want to do a song like that is I want to find solidarity with the black church, with black people, uh, who, who are trying to figure out how do we, how do we navigate this world that where it's, the cards are still kind of stacked against us culturally and sociologically. Um, so, uh, there's it, it, not an easy answer to your question, I don't think. Um it's something I think a lot more about than I used to and I'm and I'm a lot uh, I'm, um I'm just more thoughtful about whether about the song I'm gonna choose and, and why I'm gonna do it. But
0: yeah, that that's yeah, that's that's helpful. Well, you and Jeff Taylor uh just happened to be there the night of our ninth annual hunk in the concert and Mm. it was the night that we found out we'd had a late-term miscarriage and Mm. uh, obviously a a rough evening. Uh, You both were wonderfully gracious and quick to not only pray with us and and get the audience to pray with us as well, but to follow up with kind calls and messages and all that. And it was so natural uh, the way that y'all did it, And, and it was an encouragement to us after such a shock. I was honestly just on autopilot that night and just trying to get through without a breakdown. And anyway, I thank you both for that. But my question springing off of that is y'all undoubtedly know hundreds of people, have encountered thousands, and yet you so seamlessly entered into the suffering of a couple that you knew very little about and you gave us an inordinate amount of time. You made us feel cared for, prayed for, part of a global body of believers, And so how is that possible in a day where there are endless things that can pull on our heartstrings and tug at our emotions and our Facebook feeds are just full of hatred and suffering and all this stuff? Everyone's so emotionally exhausted, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, How can we as God's people stand out above the rest and, and find the time and energy to give it so freely?
1: I think one of the things we can do is, first of all, recognize that, um, a lot of the way we interact with each other in this technological age is, um, it's a virtual reality, but it's not the reality that, that Jesus is calling us to in this world. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, so social media and all, it serves its purpose. I don't want to slam it because I know it's, it can, it can be of value, um,
0: no, it's not there's nothing very social about it. <laughs> right.
1: Well, I mean, it, It. you know, when, when you hear somebody on social, you know, and, and you try to, and, and you try to, you know, fire back a complaint or a rebuttal or something that way, you're really, you're really uh, doing sort of the opposite of what Jesus said when he said, you know, if, if if you have something against your brother, you know, if you go into the church to make your offering and then you realize you have something against your brother, put your offering down, go get, go be reconciled with your brother and then come back and make your offering. Mm-hmm. Like, It's That's a hard thing to do because that actually requires physical contact. That actually requires you going somewhere with hat in hand and saying, hey, something you said the other day really bothered me or. Yep. Or something I said to you has been bugging me ever since I said it, and I'm just wondering, do I need to ask your apology? You know, that sort of thing is hard. But I think if we did more of that sort of thing, um, and, and less of just the sort of impersonal things of, of a, a text or a social media thing or any of these things where we're really sort of hiding and not coming out into the open then i think I think we'd go a long way in understanding what Jesus meant when he, he he called us to be his witnesses and then the other thing is uh I think it that makes you a little more ready then to whether you're encountering encountering a, a homeless person on the street or uh or in a in a conversation uh with somebody. Um, you're actually hearing what's being said. You're actually seeing who's standing in front of you. You're less inclined to just to leave that because you don't know how to interact with anything that's not virtual. Um, but you're actually willing to make contact to stop and ask the homeless person, when's the last time you had a meal? Could I go buy you a meal? Could we sit down and have a conversation and let me hear what it is you're dealing with today? Um, that night with you and Martha, I mean, we knew that was a hard, incredibly hard place. I, I had no idea what it felt like. I'd never been in your shoes, but I, I, I knew one thing, that to act like, hey, there's a concert. The show must go on, and let's just not deal with this. That, that's, <laughs> that seemed like the last thing we needed to do, and this, I think the Spirit was... Trying to bring us all to a better place of crying out together on your behalf and Martha's behalf and this uh, for the loss of this child to pray for mercy to pray for comfort, peace, all the grace you needed to get through a really really hard situation. Um. So yeah, I mean, I I I wish I could say I reacted all the time like that, but I don't, and I think it's because I've been. I've been formed just like everybody else, way too much by the world and the way the world does things, than by the way Jesus does things.
0: Well, I, I think uh, you know your song, "Grace for the Moment." You know, I think uh, grace is not just to get through the tough times, but it's grace to have the strength to enter into the suffering of others and to bear one another's burdens. And yeah, and I know, I know, I know the world would be a better place if we could all come to that willingness and that understanding because i mean it it knitted our hearts together and you know we viewed one another differently after that point and and uh, anyway i i just wanted to see if you had any insights on that and i think that's that's very true i think we don't see faces anymore as much as we see comments and likes and tweets
1: yeah yeah
0: you know we don't go sit down and have coffee for two hours with anybody anymore we're going to sit down and
1: Try to have 50 conversations yeah. a day. Listen, I mean, when when this George Floyd stuff broke a couple of months ago and, uh, you know, just erupted all over the country, you know, the social media went crazy and, and everybody was coming on board and saying something either for or against or whatever. And um, I think the one thing, I was as confused as anybody else as to how do I respond. And especially as a Jesus follower, how do, how do I respond to this situation? And I think one thing that where I was really listening and then maybe obeying, being obedient was, you know, i called call some of my black friends just to hear how this was making, you know, what the impact was on yeah, them. Yeah, I, I,
0: I did the same thing because I really, the, the news is not the place to figure out what's actually happening. <laughs> it's right. It's just... About the and, worst
1: place yeah. you can go. Yeah, um, and I was encouraged to make statements. You know, boy, you know, you, buddy, you got a platform and all this. Like, yeah, but I, you know, I think what I need to do is listen. I think I need to hear what it is that I've been missing as a white person in this in this culture in this day and age we live in. Absolutely. Why is this? Why is this igniting like it is? Not just in this country, but around the world. I mean, this this is this is unprecedented. I think what's been going on the last couple of months. So. It's, it's a time for me to, um, I mean, it might be a time for me to say something at some point, but I really need to shut up and listen, pick up a book and read it, <laughs> learn some things that I don't know.
0: Well, I want to wrap up with some uh, lightning round questions. And All right. These, you can just answer them as short as you want to. Uh, <laughs> but I think these are uh, are great uh, just to kind of open us up to some recommendations, lets us know a little bit more about you.
1: Okay. Uh, but favorite gospel artist? Oh, gosh. this You know, all these questions that have favorite this or that, this, this is going to oh, be hard yeah. for me, I'll tell you. But I'll say, as good as any out there, Lauren L. Harris. Oh, wow,
0: yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, I just, I love that man's vocal chops. I love the song. I love the way he delivers the song, and I love the man. I just, I, I, I can't point to many more people with, with a higher integrity.
0: He's a machine. Uh, I mean, just yeah. Uh, you know. Well, that,
1: he, 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 he is. A, he, he, but he's got so much soul. I love the way he delivers a song. what he loves on an audience as he does it. And mm-hmm. but I love the way he's lived his life. He's a, he's a faithful uh, family man and church member and church leader and. And, uh, you know, he walks it, he walks it well.
0: Well, favorite gospel
1: song. Favorite gospel song. Wow. There you see. Well, what is a favorite gospel song? I'll word (laughs)
0: them that way, that
1: way. (laughs) Okay. I think it would just have to be one of those old, you know, one of any, anything like working on a building or Jesus Uh gave me water or, uh, rocking a weary land, any of those kinds of songs there. Those are always my favorite kinds of songs to do, gospel songs to do. Uh,
0: what's a favorite secular artist?
1: Oh, I'm, well, at the top of the heat would be the Beatles. Um, currently, I would I would maybe, or Stevie Wonder. Be, uh-huh. uh, golly, I mean, that, I'm just still amazed at what he does, even... I mean, Stevie's pushing 70, and he's still just amazing. But, yeah, let's, let's say the, the Beatles and Stevie Wonder, how about that?
0: <laughs> that'll work. That'll work. Uh, most influential artist?
1: You know, it might be Doc Watson. Uh, um,
0: yep, you've mentioned him before. Yeah, Doc. We were talking. I've got to look him up some more.
1: Yeah, Doc was a great, great guitar player, but also a great artist and great singer um, and... Performer, He stood for so many things that I aspired to um, in his guitar playing and in, in, in his authenticity as an artist and person. Um, uh, he, you know, he's a mountain musician, um, but I mean, he could do everything from old mountain ballads to Gershwin. I mean, he mm. uh, I, I, I heard him do a, a um, Moody Blues song one night. And it made me weep because he, he he owned it. He just made it his own song. And uh, But he was, he was just phenomenal in so many ways. I got to know him. And, uh, yeah, I'd have to say Dot. Probably All the right. most influential.
0: Now, you know, some albums just, you know, you can pick an individual song, but what about an album top to bottom that is just perfect as far as you're concerned?
1: uh will the circle be unbroken by the nitty-gritty dirt band uh came out 1972 three albums it it it's what woke me up to the beauty of country music and um and 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 introduced me to all these people doc watson including but earl scruggs and um jimmy martin and Mother Maybelle Carter, all the you know Vassar Clements, all these great musicians that I just had no idea they were out there and pioneers of country music and songs. It was it was a seminal album for me.
0: Now, see that that's why I love asking these questions because now I got to go listen to all this. And, <laughs> uh, what about a book recommendation? I'll let you exclude the Bible, so you don't have to <laughs> um,
1: choose. All right, I would I would either. You know, you already mentioned Eugene Peterson. I'm a big Eugene Peterson fan. Uh Eugene came out with a series of books um, about, I think he wrote the first one about 15 years ago, and it was called Christ Plays in 10,000 Places.
0: That's what I'm working my way through. Yeah,
1: Yeah, and it was followed up by four more books that were a part of this series. Uh, Their titles were: one of them was called um, Eat This Book, another one was called um, The Jesus Way, another one was called... um, Practice resurrection. I forget mm. the fourth one, but anyway, there were five all together, and they were some of the best books I've ever read. Um, they had to do everything from. I mean, they were really good for their just spiritual formation as a Christian. And then um, I got to know Eugene and talked to him a lot about those books, and I realized that they were kind of um, something that he really wanted to do for the church at large. He had always sort of written to pastors in his earlier books because he mm-hmm. had such a heart for, for pastors and especially pastors of smaller churches and all. But he, he wanted to write something for the church at large in, in those in that series. And if it were one book, uh, N.T. Wright has also been a big influence on me. And I think his book, Surprised by Hope, was just one of the best best books of the last 20 years I've read.
0: Wow, is that uh, any spinoff of C.S. Lewis' Surprised by Joy?
1: Uh yes. Yeah. Okay. He, okay. Uh I mean it's it's not a, he, he it's a it's a borrowing. Uh he, he acknowledges that in the probably in the introduction that um but what he basically dealt with was um, um he NT Wright's been one of the few people handful of people out there who have sort of blown the whistle on um a Christian and and, and popular misunderstanding of heaven. And most of our most of our heaven theology is, uh, or, or, or understanding of heaven. I wouldn't even call it theology, but the the way we interpret heaven is a lot more of through a Platonic, sort of Greek, understanding than it is through uh, what the Bible has to say about heaven. You know, the Bible mm. really talks about uh, God uh, rescuing, restoring, and recreating this world. I mean, He's not throwing things away. He is making all things new. As, as somebody wrote a song not too long ago. So he's not making all new things, he's making all things new. It's <laughs> like like when it came time to to do something about you and me, he didn't throw us away and start over. He recreated us mm-hmm. in Jesus. And that recreation starts with Jesus and it it ends with Jesus. But but when you understand it in sort of this platonic way, it was a it was sort of a you know, our spirits fly off, this world just burns up and our spirits fly off to the Netherlands somewhere and, um, and, you know, and live some disembodied uh, uh, non-ending worship service for, for, I mean, that's not what the Bible uh, lays out there. Read Revelation 21 and 22, the, the very end of the Bible, it's like you see the new Jerusalem coming down. Not not us flying off somewhere, but God is filling the earth with with this new creation and with this new people and it's just an incredible vision. So surprise by hope is really N. T. Wright sort of um, addressing that and and it it I I think for me that created such a hope as and such a purpose in my life for, you know, I'm not saved so I can sit around here and wait till heaven. Like I'm saved, so I can, so I can be a part of what of of God's rescue and reclamation and re- restoration of this world. It it won't be finished until Jesus comes back. That's for sure. So it's a it's an it's a it's an already not yet sort of concept. But yet it's a concept we need to learn to live in, uh, rather than uh, sort of disengaging ourselves and. Having some sort of uh, evacuation idea of what heaven is.
0: Well, yeah, even even you know our calling as Christians and and as as men is to take it, subdue it, make it better. You know.
1: Yeah. yeah. Be so, stewards. Be stewards yeah, in this stewards world. Stewards yeah. of it and
0: take care of it because it's it's not going in the trash heap. It's just going to be. That's right. Be perfected. So.
1: Yeah. So we we try to figure out. You know how do we how do we do demonstrations of that on a daily basis in our families in our neighborhoods in our workplaces in our art in our songs you know and in you know it's so yeah that book is very helpful to think along those lines That's
0: great all right best place you've ever eaten
1: oh man i tell you one that made with some of the fondest memories for me is a little place i think it's it's Come back and it went out of business for a while, but then and it came back. I'm not sure that it's up to its former glory, but this place is down um, right off of Amelia Island, which is where we vacationed for years and years and years as a family. And every every year we couldn't wait to go back to the Down Under. It was a little restaurant, seafood restaurant, right underneath the bridge that took you over to the island. And um,
0: and what what town, state?
1: Uh, that would be just north of Jacksonville, Florida. Um, okay. Yeah, it's near near the near the Georgia Florida line, um, but Amelia Island is the northernmost barrier island on the Atlantic coast of Florida. So, anyway that 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 whole area is special to me, and that restaurant was was another one. Hey, there's one other one though. I remember in Savannah, Georgia, there was a place called um, Mrs. Wilkes Boarding House. Didn't even have a sign out front. You just had to know where it was. (laughs) And the way you found it is there was a line of people lined up every day, starting about 11 o'clock, stretched for about a block of people waiting to get in and sit down at about four or five different tables. Each table held, held about a dozen people. And then they would come out and set down plates of, I mean, bowls of, of, peas, mashed potatoes, squash, and fried chicken, and oh my oh god. My it was just, it, you, you always leave that place hurting. That, that, that's <laughs> probably the best restaurant I can remember.
0: Wow, that sounds amazing. And last but not least, you're ruler of the world. Congratulations. What?
1: <laughs> What's your first order? <laughs> to ban internal combustion engines everywhere. Everybody would have. Everybody have to give up their cars and their leaf blowers and all the things that make noise (laughs) and hurry me up too much. Slow the world down. All right. I don't. I don't think anybody wants me to be the world ruler. Just well. Too
0: bad computers don't have internal (laughs) combustion engines. Well, brother thank you for being so generous with your time I have uh, not only enjoyed but I have learned a great deal and I know the listeners have as well I really appreciate it
1: well it's been my pleasure it's always good hanging out with you miles and uh, God bless you and Martha and those youngins you're raising and you call me anytime okay
0: <laughs> all right all right well thank you so much and we'll look forward to uh, hugging you neck next time we get together
1: all right sure enough take care
0: all right. God bless thank you Well, I hope that you enjoyed this time that we spent together. I know that I have, and I pray that it has made you more appreciate the forms and functions of worship and the gifted people who help facilitate it. Continue the conversation by emailing any questions or suggestions you may have through my website at www.milespikemusic.com. That's M-I-L-E-S-P-I-K-E music.com. Support this endeavor by rating, reviewing, and sharing. If you want to go the extra mile, then I would greatly appreciate it if you purchase some digital downloads or hard copies of my music through the website and patronize our guest in any way that you can. Websites and details to that end will be in the show notes. This program plans to release every other week, so keep your eye out for the next edition of the Miles Pike Podcast. Till next time, worship wisely.